From the Los Angeles Times, this is Can't Stop Watching, your TV faves on their TV faves. I'm your host, Yvonne Villarreal. On today's episode, we can't stop watching Pamela Adlon. She's the creator, writer, and star of Better Things on FX. She breaks down how her own family is reflected in the TV show. I've got, you know, a ton of stuff in the hopper. It could go into better things or it could be like a journal of my life. And and the other thing is you said sparked, so it reminds me that it's sparked joy because I'm Marie Kondoing like a mother effer. Pamela also explains why cooking has become therapeutic while she's staying at home, what goes into a writing process, and how she determines what crosses the line and what doesn't. So let's get to it. Pamela, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yvonne! Yvonne! <laughs> that's a French-ass name. <laughs> Sorry. We just had to get it out there. We have to. My little cheese. My little croissant. <laughs> and who are you sheltering at home with? Is it a packed house? I'm with my youngest daughter, Rocky. We have just reintroduced her best friend, Marielle, who was quarantining with us at the beginning. She lives with her dad and her brother, and they've been completely isolated. So that's been quite a relief for Rocky. I've separated my mom. She, We have not had physical contact or been within eight feet of each other since March 13th, Friday the 13th. But, you know, I bring her food every day. I leave it outside. She comes over. She harasses us but from a proper social distance. <laughs> Always finding a way, right? And then my other my other two daughters, they come in and out as they've been quarantined. You know, one of my daughters just recently had exposure, so she is isolating. But on Mother's Day, we all hung out in the backyard, and uh, thank God we have a yard that we could all kind of chill. Well, so how how are you doing during this time? I've been waking up now at like three or four in the morning and my brain is going a million miles an hour. And I'm like, don't think about bad shit. Just keep going, keep going. And what I usually do is I write or I make lists and then I go back to sleep. I've gotten very good at dozing. And then I wake up and I feel oddly positive and hopeful And I see that there's so many good people in the world. I truly believe that. But, you know, some days I wake up filled with fear and terror like everybody else. It's really hard. You know, we are just having to wrap our brains around the fact that things aren't going to be normal anymore. And we can't be arrogant enough to think, oh, you know, two more weeks, we're back on, you know. Everything's got to change, you know, in terms of how we all live our lives, live in the world, do business, make music, do concerts, make television shows, make movies, every single thing we do, even animation. You think that's the, you know, the safest, coolest thing. But like I've been fortunate enough to be doing jobs from quarantine. So like I'm a character on Big Mouth and I'm in my closet with all these incredible people and we're doing it on Zoom. And I'm like, is this, does this sound good? And then yesterday I did an episode of Archer and they literally sent 
this black box from like Ice Station Zebra with a battery that was going to expire. It was like a live organ and we had to put it together. And it was the most complicated thing in the world. And it had been sanitized and everything. So everybody used to joke that, do, you know, do you do everything on your show, Pamela? Like, do you even do craft services? But now I do everything, <laughs> everything. Well, has this time at home sparked any inspiration for, you know, crafting a possible fifth season? Or is it impossible to focus on that? When I'm doing my show, I, I, I always start putting things down uh, while I'm working. So when I was shooting season two, I was writing down ideas for season three. And then there's stuff that doesn't get, you know, produced that gets bumped over, you know, oh, I never got to do this storyline. So let's do that. So I've got, you know, a ton of stuff in the hopper. It could go into better things or it could be like a journal of my life. You know what I mean? And and the other thing is you said sparked. So it reminds me that it's sparked joy because I'm Marie Kondoing like a mother effer. I'm sparking, sparking everywhere. I'm like, what's this pile today? Mm, let's go through this. What's been the hardest thing to get rid of? I guess it would be everything because I'm a hoarder. So I don't, you know, my daughters are really good at de-hoarding and decluttering. I'm my mother's daughter. I have like a war baby brain. Like I, I was born in the ration in my brain, I think. I just got rid of a popcorn maker and it was like the greatest joy of my life. I gave it to a friend and I was like, get this out of my apartment. And it's such a small thing, but I was so excited to get rid of it. because It was just taking up space. But it was probably just like sitting there for years and you looked at it like, oh, hate you. Yes. One man's trash is another man's come up. <laughs> exactly. Well, Better Things had finished shooting in December, right, for the fourth season. But you were still in post-production on some of the final episodes when all this started happening. That's right. So how, how did you find that experience of doing that part of it from home? And what technology were you using? Well, we finished shooting December 20th in New Orleans. For whatever reason, I was going into the editing room every weekend. And so by the first week of January, I had the first three episodes uh, finished and delivered. We got up until episode seven. We were able to go onto the sound mix stage. And the rest of it, I finished on an iPad and I did my color, sound, VFX, and ADR, my own personal. I directed my actors from the, this wonderful system that we had on the iPad. And my team was incredible. Everybody was just adapting together. And it was very emotional. And I remember when we finished our last sound mix, I was cutting shallots in my kitchen, doing it on the iPad. And I, I'm getting emotional right now. And it, and it was, you know, me and Erica and Sam. And we just all said, hey, congratulations. That's season four. We just finished post and it was incredible. And I'm, I'm so lucky 
because I was able to finish shooting my season. A lot of people had to stop in the middle of production. I got to tell all the stories I wanted to tell this this year, you know? So how how would Sam be handling what's going on right now? What do you think she would be doing in this time? Oh, I think she'd be doing exactly what I'm doing. <laughs> Except I, I do always contend that Sam is like me in a cape. I think I'm I'm probably not as strong as Sam. I picture a lot of cooking lessons. I have to cook. I have to stop things at a certain point and go and cook. That's it's crucial to my mental health. I'm working quite a bit and I stop at a certain point, you know, like yesterday I made Mary Ellen Rocky and my mom dinner and they were so excited because it's something that's there and it's comfort for all of us. And it's my occupational therapy, so. What did you make? I made these chicken katsu sandwiches and then I made these potato parmesan garlic wedges with uh, sauce. It sounds like bar food. Yeah, I make bar food right now. I think I'm making bar food. I wish I lived close to you. <laughs> Tell me, like, what, what TV are you watching in quarantine? What am I watching? Well, I watched Unorthodox, which was incredible. One day I just went down a very dark hole and I watched the entire Tiger King, which was quite enjoyable. I think I like to watch dark stuff right now. I think that, you know, I've always tended more towards that, but I like stuff with hope in it. You know, I don't like it uh, to be completely bleak, but I've been doing those and just then watching classic movies and stuff uh, with everybody when we can. I just got a screener for King of Staten Island and we all watched that together and we loved it very much. That's a movie I did last summer with Judd Apatow and Pete Davidson. That was really good. Well, I mean, I was looking back to an interview we did ahead of the first season. And you... Was that when you came to the mall? Yes, the mall. You helped that woman pick out a dress for her son's wedding. It was like my favorite thing. Oh, my God. Yvonne, I remember very, like <laughs> yesterday. But I remember, I mean, you were talking about how, you know... When this opportunity came, you just, you didn't know if you were ready for it. And you were telling me about like knowing when to say no to things you feel obligated to do so that you can embrace the opportunities that will, you know, enrich you. So four seasons later, what have you learned about yourself and what you're capable of in making this show? Well, I learned that, you know, the sacrifices that went into making better things like having to say no to surefire work so I could bear down and get this thing made was the best thing I could have done. You know, it's really scary to change things and kind of invest. It's the same way, like if you're building a house and you're like, oh, okay, should I invest in solar and gray water and things like this? because it's going to be so much better in the long run and it's going to uh, be incredible for the environment and it's going to save me money. But right now it's going to cost me money to invest in it. It's worth it. You've, you've got to be able to 
figure out what sacrifices to make for the greater good and for your future. I love that. Well, you you mentioned the mall scene where I first met you. Um, one of the great things about Sam is her interactions with people around her, like the strangers she encounters, like when she buys the El Camino or when she takes up the security guard's offer to give her a ride after that game. And that's very much like you, because like I said, you were helping that woman pick out a dress for her son's wedding as you're directing an episode. I mean, talk about where that comes from. It's a trait that I have. I always want to get into people's heads, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm curious about people. And I think that comes from my mom, Yvonne. It really comes from my mom. I mean, and then my mom tells a story that when I was a little girl and we were in Manhattan and we got on a bus, there was a man who was talking or something to um, me and my mom. And I took the man's hand and I took my mom's hand and I put them together because I wanted them to hold hands. And my mother got really upset. <laughs> but I think that I, I, I like drawing people together. I'm drawn to to people and I want to know their stories and I like to engage and I like to be of service. You know, I like to be a cheerleader. I've always been a person who's, who's kind of rooted for the underdog and people who aren't quite out in the open. It's my, my mother. I definitely see that as something that came from my mother. Well, I want to talk about a scene that both my mom and I really enjoyed from this season. And it's the scene where Max is upset that she doesn't have any clean clothes to wear for work. And it leads it leads to some choice words. And Sam calls her daughter the C word. And we enjoyed it. Just, I mean, my mom hasn't called me that, but we definitely, she definitely calls me out when I'm being an asshole basically. So, I mean, talk about like where that came from and how was it to commit it to the page? That was something that we talked about in the writer's room. And it was just, it was kind of thrilling to say that Max gets to the point that Sam breaks and calls her the worst thing you could ever call a woman. And then Max hits her right back. Ira Parker, who's one of my writers, who's a straight man in his 30s who cannot relate to this scene at all was the one who wrote it and he wrote the word in like 16 times and I was like Ira we can't say are you kidding me and he just like pushed the envelope there and and so it was one of those things that when we're shooting we're kind of covering it a lot like when I did the scene with Greg Cromer in the truck no Jeff no you just do it and you see what you can get away with. So I talked to Ira about this recently. You know, we have what's on the page, but in practice and we're executing the scene, you never really know what it's going to be like. So all of these kind of like this roller coaster of emotion going up and down and the anger and then how emotional it is and how... Sam's in tears at the end and Max is aghast and the anger at the top and just born from kind of throwing like rocks at each other. And then it's like, hey, that hurts. And then coming back around and then 
the realization and the empathy and the apology and the love. Well, how do you know whether something like that is going to work as opposed to rubbing the viewers the wrong way? Or do you just have to not care about that when you're trying to go for truth and honesty? I've learned that if we're being careful, it's not going to work. If it's uncomfortable, it's going to be exciting. If at the end of the day, I feel like something's going to be really offensive without warrant and without it being something that has uh, meaning or value, then I won't do it. You mentioned before about wanting viewers to come to their own conclusions on some aspects of this season, but I really need the answer to this. So in the Batsanyeta episode where there's that moment where Duke whispers something to her dad, Xander, will you tell me what you envisioned her whispering there? Okay, so Yvonne, I my first movie was a movie called Grease 2. Okay, so at the end, Michael... Maxwell Caulfield, like Dolores, my character goes up to him and she's like, yeah, good to see ya or whatever. And he goes, he he looks at me, he gives me a kiss on the cheek and he whispers something in my ear. Nobody ever knew. So I just leave that to you guys to decide. I, I mean, I have all kinds of theories, but that's not something I could ever answer for you. Well, you know, the show has this way of being a coming-of-age story for Sam and everyone she's basically surrounded by. Like, everyone's at these different stages in their lives. And season four really, you know, begins with Sam's sort of midlife crisis moment. And by the end, we see her sort of consider her future beyond her kids. How did your own realization of that reality compare? Well, I had this moment last year where two of my daughters moved out within a week of each other. And I felt like somebody threw a brick wall at my stomach. It was shocking. And all of a sudden, my 16-year-old and I were empty nesters together. You start going, whoa, this went really fast. And it's scary. It's kind of like the way we are right now. Like we're all looking at, at our future and saying, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, I, I wish I had done this. I wish I had done that. And, and you remember when you're raising kids, they're not your kids. You're just taking care of them for themselves, for their future. I mean, we all ask ourselves at a certain point of our, in our lives, if you worked hard for this career and then you have it, like what's next? So are you thinking about what comes after better things when it does come to an end? Like, are you thinking about, okay, what, what's my next chapter going to be? I'm still uh, moving forward and I would love to do more better things. Maybe the, I'll call it more better things or mo better things. And I'm writing a movie with my friend Ariel Levy based on her book and I'm developing other shows and um um de-hoarding and I'm the top of top of the list is making sure that my kids are okay mentally and physically and uh my mom and I feel like besides working and being productive which is great 
And if you're not being productive, that's okay too. But I'm just so grateful for what I have. I'm just sitting in gratitude. And sometimes I just want to burst into tears because I'm like, oh, thank God we, we all have each other. I fought so hard to like have my mom live next door to us. And now I'm so grateful on my knees that she's not in a home and in danger. And, you know, I feel like if anybody has anything right now, they need to hold on dearly to what that is. How do you think the show has deepened your relationship with your daughters or with your mother or with yourself? It's almost like my show is my living journal. So, you know, I've been keeping a journal since I'm 10 years old, right? I was very, very diligent about it for years and years. Now I've got to sit down. Now I've got to fill this journal, that journal, both pages like it was a job. And then one year, like in the 80s, I lost my journal for the entire year. And it kind of wiped my, I just cracked. I was like, forget it. I'm never writing anything down again. My show, Better Things, is like a living journal almost. Because it's like I said to you before, if I'm writing down ideas for the show, it's really like I'm journaling. Oh, this thing happened. Wouldn't that, wasn't that crazy? Or boy, wouldn't that have been great if this happened or if I said that or whatever. So it's like I'm living, I'm living those thoughts and my, my show makes me very reflective of my life, but I've always lived my life in a, in a very reflective way. Um, completely like I'm there, but I've always kind of felt like I'm, I'm watching, you know, what's going on and remembering, remembering and kind of stowing it away. I've been doing animation and voice voices for years. And so like when you work with some of those titans, like the greats, you see them pulling these voices out. It's because they stow the memory and the feeling away and they can pull it out at any time. Well, you mentioned like that you've been, when you were working on season four, you were writing things down for season five. In this time at home, how much like have you jotted down in terms of like interactions that you've had with your daughters during this time or with your mother about, oh, this could be a thread or this could be like dialogue for season five or this might be something? Oh, I have a whole COVID diary. So like when I told you like I wake up at three and four in the morning, I'll just, I'll pull out my phone and talk into the notes folder so it's all written down. And I, I I don't worry about spelling or if I say like the word Batsonetta and it writes bats in her A or whatever. I don't care. I just get it all down. And then I have like all of this stuff that I can look at, you know, after a couple of months, I can cut and paste and say, okay, where was my brain? at all those three in the mornings. Are you of the mind that while you'll pull from those COVID diaries, you won't necessarily work COVID into the show? Listen, from the beginning, this when this started, everybody, that's the only thing they say. Well, this is going in pandemic season five. So <laughs> I have no idea, but you you can't, I guess move forward right now without acknowledging it unless you're making a period piece. And also, none of us know what production's going to look like anymore. 
of course it would be interesting to write about. And I've always been a kind of a science fiction doomsday prepper, zombie escape plan person. I mean, that was going to be a huge threat in the show this season. And, and I have a little bit of it when I'm like zombie escape plan talking about that. Yeah, I mean, I think everything's going to be colored by this. Well, I also want to mention outside of Better Things, you appeared on This Is Us as a therapist to Sterling K. Brown's character, Randall. How did you find the time and how did that come about? Well, I was still shooting. I think I spoke to Dan Fogelman probably November. He had pitched me to Sterling and I knew Sterling from before and Sterling was like, yes. And I talked to Fogelman and I was like, I, I'm shooting until the end of December and they wanted to shoot my stuff in December, but they pushed it for me. That was incredible. You know, being there and witnessing Sterling, who's a beast. Oh my God. He's unbelievable. That was uh, just a once-in-a-lifetime experience. I mean, you've been in this industry since you were young. Your dad, Don Siegel, was a screenwriter and producer. How did, you know, growing up with it shape your view of it? Like, was it hard to enjoy TV or movies because you know how they were made? No, I was obsessed with everything. I was obsessed with Broadway, television, movies. I couldn't get enough. I loved all of it. I loved books. I loved comic books. I mean, my mother worked for a publisher, so all I did was read every play that the publishing house published, which was Ionesco, Neil Simon, um, Pinter, and uh, my dad wrote comic books. I read all of those. I had all the mad magazines, and then my dad started getting into television, and I just, I just wanted to watch TV see movies. I mean, all of that. It's, it was just, I, I still can't get enough. That's the stuff that is my, that's my crack. What were the TV shows you were watching as a kid? Well, it was all the cartoons. It was um, Bugs Bunny and Wacky Races. And it was the, the Disney movies and, you know, like Partridge Family, Brady Bunch, um, and then all the Norman Lear shows. I was completely obsessed. Yeah, that's that's the good and the bad of what's going on right now. It's like I'm watching a lot of TV and I'm going back and watching classics. Like I've been watching the Dick Van Dyke show on Hulu. Oh, it's really good. It must be like such a weird feeling knowing your comfort food for people too. Like you've created a show that people are watching during this time. Yeah, that feels pretty good. That feels pretty good. Uh, it touches me how much it resonates with people because I'm just somebody who, when I started the show, I was like, nobody's going to care about this lady or whatever. How can I make this be something that's meaningful and not just another TV show? And that's always been my goal. And it was my pleasure and my luck to, as an actor, when I wasn't, you know, behind the scenes, like to do stuff like, Californication and King of the Hill that people were very passionate about. I love that, that it's not just another, oh, I saw that show or whatever, like that it's something that people really, really dig. Well, before we wrap things up, I have a final question and it comes from our previous guest. 
And that person is Jane Levy from NBC's Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. And this is the question she has for you. What she loves most about Mae Whitman. Oh, <laughs> um, that I, I am partially responsible for raising her and making her the person she is today. I just want to take all the credit for Mae Whitman because she is like, oh, I mean, her mom is one of my mentors in voiceover, Pat Music. And one day we were all like at an event together and Mae was little. She was like eight. And they let me drive May to like this other party. And May got into my 88 Mustang convertible. And there was a picture of Jimi Hendrix with his guitar on fire on my dashboard. And May pointed at it and said, who's that? <laughs> and I gave it to her. And um, there's a synchronicity within our lives. And, and I've always been lucky enough to know her. And then later we did the Tinkerbell movies together and then we did Parenthood together. And she's just uh Mishpucha. She's a member of my family. She's she's just an exceptional person. Her face, that's what I love the most. It's a good face. Well, now we're going to ask you to return the favor. Our next guest will be Katrina Belf from Outlander. So if you have a question for her, what would you like us to ask? Oh, okay. Is she thinking about how she is going to keep going in the future as an actor and more? Thank you for that. It was such a pleasure talking to you. I'm so sad that I don't have you in my apartment cooking. Oh, Yvonne! I'm going to try to make your roast chicken. It's so easy. I'm, I'm going to do this. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me. Yvonne! Yvonne! <laughs> That's it for the ninth episode of Can't Stop Watching. I'm your host, Yvonne Villarreal. Our producer is Paige Heimson, and our executive producer is Abby Fentress-Swanson. Our engineer is Mike Heflin, and a special shout out to Elena Howe for booking the guests for this podcast. Come back next week, guys. We're talking to actress Katrina Balfe. Well, I think Claire is sort of perfectly prepared for this kind of thing. I mean, Claire would, would be the one character that I think would do really well. I think she would be working on the front lines. If you like Can't Stop Watching, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple. Special thanks to Julia Turner, Matt Brennan, and Clint Shaw. We hope you're enjoying this podcast created by the journalists at the LA Times. Right now, access to facts has never been more important, and the Times is in the business of reporting them. Stay connected and subscribe, because your subscription supports the production of podcasts like this one and our award-winning journalism. Visit latimes.com slash support LA Times to subscribe. Thanks for listening. And see you next week.